0: So, every year we come to Christmas, and the challenge that I face leading up to a sermon like this is which text to present. There are several Christmas passages. Obviously, you have the passage from Luke, you have the passage from Matthew, you have a bunch of prophecies from the Old Testament, you have other texts, especially in the epistles that talk about Jesus' coming. Um, this year we're returning to Luke two, and I say returning because last year we went through Luke two as well. Uh, the reason why I'm coming back to this passage is because I don't want to assume that everyone here would know the Christmas story, and so it's right for us, uh, whether you don't know it or whether you do know it, to review it over again. Then we'll move to another text in the second part of the sermon, but. Let's move into the story, Luke chapter 2. In verse 1, we are introduced to a name that we're all familiar with, especially as you think about your history classes. His name is Caesar Augustus. He was the Roman emperor between 27 BC and 14 AD. Uh, He was the first Roman emperor who came along and was attributed with divine or divinity. People worshipped him. All around the Mediterranean world, he was a well-known individual. And Luke, who is recording this for us, he, he knew who Caesar Augustus was as well. And so he takes us to a specific time in Augustus's reign, the time when Augustus wanted everyone in the empire to be counted. It says that he declared that everyone be registered, and the reason for this is more than likely that, among other things, the counting and the registration of people across the empire was a good opportunity for Caesar to say, hmm, you need to be taxed. I'll take your money. So everyone is going to be registered. Luke also introduces us to another figure, somebody who is in power or soon to be in power, and his name is Quirinius, who was to be the governor of Syria. Quirinius was a very capable, well-known leader at the time. He had spent several different years and several different stints in the Roman Empire leading in different places where Caesar had placed him. And the question is, in verses 1 and 2, why is Luke starting out with these well-known figures? At least well-known to his original audience. I think that Luke is not only giving us a time in history, but I think he's also presenting earthly kings in contrast to whom Jesus is going to be. The story continues, and we're introduced to a new character. His name is Joseph Joseph. Luke tells us that Joseph is from the area of Galilee, specifically from a small town called Nazareth. Now, just to compare Nazareth to a town today, how many of you know about the town Elbridge, Michigan? Can I see your hands? Some of you know. Some of you do. About, I see just maybe five or six hands. Elbridge is a town that is just west of Hart, to the north of us. It boasts a population of 911 people, and it seems to be known for practically nothing. That's Nazareth, and that's where Joseph is from, this little town up north where later on folks will say, can anything good come from Nazareth? Joseph, he needs to make a trip from Nazareth. He needs to travel south, approximately 90 miles to the village of Bethlehem, because the decree from Augustus is that you have to go to the hometown, basically where your family comes from. For Joseph, that's Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem is approximately 90 miles south of Nazareth, which means that it would have taken Joseph and Mary. Four days walking about 22 miles per day. And we know that Mary is pregnant. The beginning chapters of Luke tell us that Mary is pregnant with the Savior. It was the Holy Spirit who miraculously caused this pregnancy within Mary. And the text says that after she had arrived in Jerusalem making this journey, the time came for her to give birth to her firstborn son. She's left home She's with Joseph. Perhaps other family members have had to travel to Bethlehem as well to be registered. But could you imagine for a young lady, her first child being born, having to go away from your home, perhaps feeling the insecurity and vulnerability, where is this child going to be born? We know that God had planned it this way. God had been putting all of these pieces together because back in Micah 5, verse 2, A prophecy was made long ago that Bethlehem would be the birthplace of the Savior. And so here's Mary, Joseph. She gives birth to a son. And the text tells us that she wrapped him in these swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn or people's guest room. There's an irony here. In that Jesus' life would be marked by those who either welcomed him into their lives or more or less conclude that they have no room for him. It's verses 1 through 7. Now the text continues with the story in verses 9 through 14. We're, we're transported from Bethlehem from that manger scene to the rolling hills outside of Bethlehem. Bethlehem is surrounded with rolling hills. You could talk to Greg, who's from Bethlehem. He's with us here today, and he can share more about the contour of the land around Bethlehem. It tells us that in that same region, right outside of Bethlehem, there's a group of shepherds who are out in the field, and to them, it would have been just another ordinary night. They're working second, maybe third shift, they're watching their flocks, protecting their sheep would have been calm. Perhaps the sheep are down. And then an event happens. The text tells us that God sent an angel to them in such a way where they're shocked. They're terribly afraid. And so the Bible says that the angel appears to these shepherds and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they are filled with Fear. Now, I don't know exactly what the glory of the Lord looks like, but what comes to my mind is the northern lights, and you've seen those green colors dance around in the sky, and perhaps it was something like that where the glory of the Lord, the northern lights kind of image, came down and was swirling around them so that they could see or experience the glory of the Lord in a very visual way. Then the angel speaks, and he declares to them the following message. He says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, right over there, that's Bethlehem. Who's born? He goes on to say, A Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this is going to be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And so at that very moment, while the angel is speaking to them, God sends a host, a heavenly host of angels, and they are saying and praising God with these words, "'Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased.'" You can put yourself out there in the darkness, in the field, and let your imagination run with the glory of the Lord shining, the angel speaking, and a multitude of heavenly hosts now praising God with those words. Now, if you're a shepherd, what would you do if an angel came and announced to you that Jesus had come and he was on the other side of that hill? right down in the village of Bethlehem, maybe 20 minutes walking distance. What would you do? How would you respond to that news? Well, the shepherds, they had no question in their mind. They were ready to go into Bethlehem, and in their words, they have to see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And so they made great haste and went to go see the Savior who had been born. Now, I want to just pause there for a second. The response of the shepherds to the spectacular news that Jesus is born is a response of belief. They had not seen the Savior. They had only heard of him. They were told where to find him. And if you're looking at Christianity, kind of like I look at a used car. I go up. I kind of study it for a little bit. I wonder, is this thing going to work for me, or is it a lemon? I do a little tire kicking, and I hem and I haw for a while. And then I try to talk the person down in price a little bit more. But if you're looking at Christianity kind of like I look at a used car, here is what you can do. You can come to the Savior. You can examine the Savior. You can see who He is by just opening up the Word of God that we've been given and get to know Him more. Move towards the Scriptures with a faith or a desire, expecting to find Him there. That's what the shepherds are doing. They're moving towards Jesus. In verses 16 and 17, they find Mary and Joseph, and they see the baby lying in a manger. Now, what do you think Mary and Joseph would have thought when these shepherds show up at this manger scene. It'd be more than a little weird if you've just given birth to a baby in a delivery room and a few farmers show up. (laughs) Naturally, Joseph and Mary, they've wanted to know, why are you here? And so the shepherds tell them, having seen the manger, having seen the baby, they tell Mary and Joseph and whoever else may be there, what happened? The angels came and told us. That this is Christ, the Lord, the Savior whom we've been waiting for. This was yet another sign that Mary's son was the Savior. And the passage tells us that folks are filled with wonder. Now the last part of the story here zooms in on Mary. And we see the response of Mary. It says that Mary treasured up all of these things in her heart. You have to think about this. From the beginning of Luke chapter 1, she was approached by an angel as a young girl saying, you are going to be the mother of the Savior from heaven. She goes and visits her cousin Elizabeth, and the baby inside Elizabeth's womb leaps for joy because he can see that the Savior is coming. You know, Zachariah, he goes mute because he wouldn't believe that his wife is going to be pregnant. Pregnant with the the messenger who's going to prepare the way for Jesus. Mary's journey down to Bethlehem with Joseph has this baby. The shepherds are coming in saying, The angels have told us that you are giving birth to the Savior. And so the text says that she is treasuring all of these things in her heart, treasuring them kind of like gold, but they're not gold. They're moments, they're events that are taking place. And she's saying, These are so precious to me. And again, here's an insight. The message of Jesus and accepting Him as your Savior is going to be a treasure for those who lay hold of Him. Not only does Mary treasure all of these things in her heart, but verse 19 says that she pondered what had taken place. In other words, she can't fully understand it. And I just want to share this, that Christ is the treasure, and yet as you hold the treasure in your heart and in your life, you won't fully understand everything from A to Z about who Christ is. That's okay. I don't understand everything about the car But I treasure the car, and I begin to ponder more and more, what is under the hood? How does this thing work? I can't understand it all, but I'm going to lay hold of what I do understand. Faith isn't the ability to understand everything. Faith is believing in what you do here and those things that you can understand. And here's what we understand. A Savior has been born. You might say, I can't believe that. I can't believe it just yet. Okay, will you ask God to help you with that? You might show up this morning and you say, I'm I'm here because a friend invited me. I'm here because a relative invited me. I hear what you're saying up front, and I just can't lay hold of that yet in faith. So here's what I want to challenge you to do. Will you ask God to help you lay hold of that in faith? God says in Jeremiah 29 verse 13, he says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Will you say, okay, God, I hear what the Bible says, and I want to seek you with all of my heart. And God says, you will find me in that moment. So here's the story. Jesus, the Savior from heaven, has come into the world. Okay, but I want to ask a question, why did Jesus come into the world? Why did Jesus come into the world? And we can go from the story now to the reason here. And I want to give you two reasons as we look at the second half of this sermon. These are encouraging to me. Why did Jesus come from heaven into the world? Reason number one is Jesus came to call sinners. Jesus came to call sinners. If you have your Bibles open, you're here in Luke, and I want you to just turn a couple pages over to Luke chapter 5. If you don't have your Bibles, I'll read it for you. You can follow along. And I'm looking at verses 27 down to 32. In verse 27, we're introduced to a tax collector. It says, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth. And Jesus said to him, he said, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Verse 29. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So, What's going on in this story. We're introduced to this guy named Levi. Levi's a tax collector. Who are tax collectors? Um, They're the guys that sit at these toll booths, and as people are passing by, they they have to pay their taxes to the Roman Empire. Specifically, Jews do not like tax collectors. Uh, Their money is going to the Roman Empire. It'd be like us sending our money off to North Korea or something like that. I don't want that going there. That's how they saw it. And the tax collectors, they're told to collect a tax from the folks, but they have some liberty. They might tell you, you owe $400 to the Roman Empire, and yet you know that you only owe 300. And the tax collector could say, no, you owe 400, pay or you're going to pay the consequence for it. And what that tax collector do would pocket the extra 100. They were known for being corrupt, slimy, Of putting money in their own pocket at your expense. And for this reason, the Jews, especially the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious elites, they're saying, because you're marked by corruption and lie, we can't stand you. We don't like you at all. So when Jesus, a religious leader known as a rabbi, sees Levi, Matthew, a tax collector, sitting at his tax booth, and he walks up to Matthew, or Levi is his name here, and he says, you come and follow me. And Levi surrenders what he's doing as an occupation and says, it's better for me to follow Jesus than where I'm at in life. Levi gives his life over to Jesus, and out of celebration, he throws this great feast at his house. This guy would have had money, so he could put on quite a spread. And who do tax collectors hang with? They hang with other tax collectors, other slimy, corrupt people. And so at Matthew's house, here are all of these people coming together for this feast. The religious leaders, they've been following Jesus around, and they stand back, and perhaps his disciples are off to the side, and they're saying among themselves and to Jesus' disciples, why does your rabbi, why does your leader sit and have meals with corrupt, slimy people? Well, Jesus hears their comment, and look what he says in verse 31. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. In other words, it's only the sick people who need the doctors. Now, I've been very familiar with the doctors over the past week and a half. I've had to go in a couple different times. One was for kidney stones to get broken up a week ago this last Wednesday. And then this past Wednesday, I was in again, and they had to scope my esophagus and stretch it out and test to see if I had any kind of allergies going on there. Now, there's two realities that are going on. When... When a medical exchange like that is taking place, someone actually has to be sick. They have to recognize themselves as being sick, and that's why they move towards the doctor. And then the doctor is calling me and setting up an appointment and opening up the operating room for me to go in and to have these different procedures being done. In other words, the doctor has to approve and and call me in. I can't just go in there any day and say, hey, doc, um, I'm feeling okay, but, you know, do something for me. He's like, no, I can't do that. You actually need to be sick. Jesus makes this statement, and he says, only those who are sick need a physician. Now, look how he connects the dots here in verse 32. After saying, those who are well have no need of a physician, but only those who are sick, he says this about himself, and notice the language of him coming or arriving here on earth. He says, I have not come to call the righteous, but I have come to call sinners to repentance. Why did Jesus come? Jesus came to extend a call. He came to call specifically those who see themselves as sinners, which is really good news for all of us. If you can see that you have broken God's law and committed acts or just one act of sin against God, Jesus came into the world not to raise his nose up and banish you, and push you away like the Pharisees do, or even like some religions with sort of judgmental perspectives of others saying, we have to separate ourselves from you because you make us unclean. Jesus wasn't doing that at all. What he was doing is coming in on a mission saying, I'm looking for sinners. I'm looking for those who are sick because they need a physician. So, If you have lied to your wife or husband this year, if you have coveted something this past week, if you've committed adulterous acts or had adulterous thoughts or desired something or someone more than you've desired God, here's the good news. Jesus came as a Savior not to stick his face up and walk past you and banish you, He came into the world to call sinners like you and me to himself because he's the great physician who saves us from our sins. It was Matthew's gospel where the angel came to Joseph and he said, you will name him Jesus. Why? Because Jesus means salvation. For he will save his people from their sins. There are certain sicknesses and illnesses that doctors can't touch. They they can't get to it. They can't heal them. And the patient goes away feeling helpless, perhaps hopeless. But there is never any sin or amount of sin that you have committed, friend, that you can't come to Jesus with and be completely forgiven. To put it positively, Jesus can forgive any and every sin that you have ever committed. And right now, he is calling sinners to himself for the purpose of spiritual healing, healing us from our sins. question is, how do you respond to that call? The same way Levi did. Jesus came up to him, called him to himself, come, follow me, follow me. And Levi had an opportunity right there. Nope, I'm not going to follow you. I'm going to stay right here because this is the path. This is the life for me. Or he could turn from where he was going in life and saying, okay, that no longer controls my life, but you control my life, and I am going to, in faith, follow you with my life. I'm surrendering to you, Lord. That's what it is to respond to the call of Jesus. Acts 16, verse 31, Jesus said this, or the Apostle Paul said this, I'm sorry, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So you might be here as a non-Christian. Jesus is calling. He came into the world to call us to himself for the forgiveness of sins. And so, Christian, as you look at this past year, I hope you've had a wonderful year. But there might be times where you look at this last year and say, man, there were some real low moments. My selfishness, my sin made a mess of things in my life and the life of others. Embarrassment and shame follows me. Jesus is pleased to meet with you. Jesus is pleased to come alongside of you just like he came alongside of Levi, just like he came alongside of all of those tax collectors and sinners at that feast. Your sin will never be too great for Jesus. He won't cast you aside. He sits at the table with you, graciously calling you once again to repentance. Jesus came into the world to call you to himself. Not only did Jesus come to call sinners to himself, but secondly, Jesus came to secure sinners. He came to secure those who would trust in him. I'm going to go in my Bible to John chapter 6, verse 48. The language of coming is here once again. Why did Jesus come? Here's the text, John 6. John 6, verse 38, Jesus says this, For I have come down from heaven, and there's the language again, I have come. I have come down from heaven, why? Not to do my own will, but to do the will of Him who sent me. There's the language again that Jesus has come, and He's coming to do the will of the Father. What is the will of the Father? He continues, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. God's will is that if you look or believe or respond to the call of God the Son, Jesus, If you respond to the call with faith, you will have eternal life, and your eternal life is secure because Jesus will raise you up on the last day. That's the Father's will, and Jesus is saying, I've come to do the will of the Father. Now, the phrase that catches my attention is that he's going to lose nothing or no one that the Father has given to him. And the question that comes to my mind is, how is it that the coming of Jesus secures people who have believed in him, and how will they be raised up on the last day? How is it that Jesus secures us? Now, you might be able to find multiple answers throughout the text of Scripture, but I want to just point our attention to one other passage, and we'll land the plane. John chapter 10. Jesus says this in verses 9 and following. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Again, you notice the language of I have come for this reason. And then he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. Now, there are arguments that can be traced from beginning to end, and there are arguments that can be traced from end to beginning. Let's just walk backwards through this text. If you can leave it up there on the screen for us, Scott, that might help a few. He laid down his life for you. You can see that in that last phrase. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's what Jesus has done He willingly went to the cross and he took the judgment upon himself that we deserve for our sins. He laid down his life for the sheep. If you keep working backwards, that's what makes him the good shepherd. The good shepherd has laid his life down for the sheep. And his life for you is given so that you might have life abundantly, You can only have this life and be saved if you come to Jesus as your shepherd and enter into his flock. And what Jesus is saying is, I have come to lay down my life so that these folks, my flock, can have life abundantly. Throughout this chapter or section here, Jesus is using the imagery of himself being a shepherd. Sheep need to be brought into a pen or a pasture where they can be secure. In Jesus' time, most of these pastures would have fences that were built up by stones that they would have pulled out of their fields, and then over the course of years, these stones are lined in walls, kind of like what you might expect to see in Scotland, where you see those stone walls running up and down the hills. This is what's happening in Jesus' time. And sheep are going to come into the safe pasture here where they can graze on the grass and be protected. But there's a door. And that door has to be guarded or else a thief can come in or a lion can come in. So I know that some of you are normally in junior church this morning, but you're here this morning. So let's think of a shepherd for just a moment. And he has a number of sheep. And he has welcomed them into this pasture. And there's the door. And what Jesus is saying is a shepherd has to stand at the door to protect his sheep from the thief that comes or a wild animal that comes. So let your mind wander a little bit. Let's say the lion is prowling around. And there's the shepherd. This shepherd is so great and so strong He's holding a machine gun in his hands. And he will not let any lion come close to his sheep. He protects them. He's greater and stronger than the lion because those sheep belong to him. They won't be stolen. They won't be taken away. He's laid claim of them. They belong to him. And he will protect them effectively. Jesus says, we are the sheep. We belong to him and we're wrapped up in the security because of his strength that is greater than sin. And so Jesus can say later on in John chapter 10 verses 28 and 30, he says, I have given them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus came to secure your salvation. And Jesus does that by going to the cross and those who trust in him now are welcomed into the security that he provides and no one is greater than God. You're protected. He came to accomplish that security for you. Jesus is calling people to himself. Jesus is securing people because of who he is. I don't know where you are this morning. Some of you might be coming in with various struggles this past week, this past year, your life. Some of you may be coming in this morning and you're confident in who Jesus is. This morning, I was on the way in, and I come in early on Sunday mornings. It was about 4:45 or so. And I'm making my way um, on my normal route, and I see a figure, somebody, standing on the sidewalk, uh, not too far from my house, a few blocks from my house. And I turn the corner. It's dark, it's foggy, as you saw this morning. And as I'm driving away from that individual, it's almost like God started saying, nobody's out here at 4.45 in the morning for no reason at all. And I wondered if I knew the guy because he had a physique of a guy that I know, and I thought, maybe it's so-and-so. So I made it about a quarter of a mile down the road, and I turn around, and I come back, and... He's in a place where he, there's a, like a waist-high brick wall. Um, and he's standing up against the brick wall. And so I pull into this parking lot that's on the other side of the brick wall. And I kept my car running just in case I had to put the pedal to the metal and get out of there, you know? 4.45 in the morning, you never know what's going on. And here's this guy. And he's leaning up against the brick wall, checking his phone. And I said, you doing OK? And he said, yeah, I'm doing just fine. His tone said he wasn't doing that great. And so I said, well, a Merry Christmas to you. He said, thanks. Thanks much. I said, do you know what Christmas is all about? Nope, I don't. I said, can I just share with you what Christmas is all about? Yeah, sure, go ahead. So I said, the story of Christmas is that God loves you. And he sent his son into the world as a gift of love to take your sins upon himself and told him, I'm a mess. I'm a sinful mess, and I need something to happen with my sin or else I'm doomed. And there's Jesus, the Savior, who came and willfully surrendered his life so that our sins could be placed upon him. He's like, Okay, thank you. All right, Merry Christmas. <laughs> I'm out of there. I was about a quarter mile back down the road, and I'm thinking to myself, why is this guy out in the morning, 4.45? Nobody else is out. And then a thought occurred to me. He wasn't walking anywhere. He was standing there, and he was facing the alcohol store. And I thought to myself, this guy is probably hurting aching from what's taken place. And maybe he's just waiting for that place to open up so that he could sort of drown his sorrows or whatever's going on in his life. Now, there's more than just alcohol in the alcohol store. I can't say this for sure, that he was there for that. There's eggs, there's milk, there's pop. It's a gas station right there by our house. But I drove away and I thought... If he's there because he's hurting, and he just wants to mask his hurt with a substance, maybe that's his case, he'll drink the alcohol, he'll get numb for a while, he'll feel good, and then the alcohol goes away, and he still has the same problems, the same junk, the same stuff that drove him there. And I just wanted him to know more than anything that there's something greater than the liquor that's gonna numb him. Again, I don't know if he's there for that or not. It was just the thought process that occurred to me. And then I just started making connections. We all kind of have those moments, don't we? We all have those kind of moments where we look at our past, we look at what's taken place. And we're saying, man, I'm ashamed of that. Or, man, I feel lonely. Or, I feel isolated. I feel like nobody cares and I'm worthless. How do I make this feeling go away? Well, I can turn to those things. Or I can hear Jesus calling, saying, Nate, I know that you're struggling. I know that you've committed all kinds of sin. I know that you feel shameful. I know that you feel embarrassed. I know that you feel worthless. I'm the physician who has come. You're sick, and I'm inviting you to come to me, and I'm not just going to numb what's happened in the past. What I'm going to do is I'm going to be a shepherd who walks with you and cares for you. I'm going to love you, and I'm going to secure you, and I'm going to protect you. Will you come to me? Will you believe me? Will you have a relationship with me? And as we look at this time of year, this is what Christmas is about. Jesus has come to call sinners, and I'm one of them. He's come to call sinners. We're all one of them. And he's not there thumbing his nose up at us. He's there saying, I'm ready to have a meal with you. I'm ready to sit with you. I'm ready to have fellowship with you. I'm ready to be your friend, and I will be your Savior. Will you trust me? And I will secure you all the way to the end so that you might have eternal life. This Christmas, with all the celebrations going on, the gifts being exchanged, the downtime, Remember that Jesus came to call you to himself. He loves you, sinner. And if you have responded to him in faith, his death on the cross has bought you. And now you are forever guarded. You're safe in the hands of Jesus. He will secure you all the way to the end. I think if Jesus were here and you were receiving that gift, he'd say something like, I love you and Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your kindness to us. We don't have it all together. We have sinned. We have memories of sin that accompany us sometimes shame sometimes embarrassment and and yet lord you're the one who welcomes us to yourself and says i'll accept you i'll be your lord and savior i'll walk with you all the way to the end and so we're thankful that you have given us the gift of your son thank you that he came in the world to call us and secure us all the way to the end i pray for those who are here, everyone that's here, I pray that you would give a gift of encouragement, a gift of encouragement because of the truth and that our attention would be drawn towards you for how great and how kind you are, that you would come and meet us where we are. So we thank you for, once again, your grace to us. I pray for your blessing upon us as we go from here and gather with others and enjoy this Christmas season. It's in the name of your Son we pray. Amen.